Well, do take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. It's good for you to have your Bible open if you're not regularly used to doing that. The reason for asking you to keep your Bible in front of you open is so that you can check that what I say comes out of the Bible and that I'm not putting it into the Bible, okay? That's the, you're there is my check. And you can ask me at the door if you think I've got it wrong. You can do that. Well then, this, uh, we, we've read this morning the opening lines of this great prophecy of Isaiah. We're beginning an epic journey in one of the epic books of the Bible. Don't know how long it's going to take, but we're going to be here for a while to camp in the language of this great prophet. And these opening lines have been described as the opening bars of an overture to a great oratorio. And like any good overture, it captures many of the themes and leitmotifs that are sounded over and over again in the prophet's major message. And although, as we're going to see, it has divine origin, this prophecy comes through a human agent, Isaiah, the son of Amos or Amos. That is, it comes to us through the personality and the passion and the poetry and the prose of a vibrant and intelligent human being. His fingerprints are all over the place, little features that point to his personality. But right at the beginning of his book, he doesn't say too much about himself. He doesn't give us much biographical information. Not until chapter 6 does he even describe what one of these visions might have looked like. And the way he formats the book is intentional because he wants to remind us that this is primarily the Word of God and therefore belongs to God. It's God's possession and not His. And so in the opening words of the book, all we're told really about Isaiah is that he had about a 40-year career alongside Moses and Jeremiah, one of the longest careers of any prophet that we know. Well, his opening language tells us something about the origin and the form, the focus rather, and the scope of his work. As to its origin, he says it was a vision, something he had seen. But God is the one who has made the seeing possible. It's as if God has opened a window in heaven so that he can see the Lord. Chapter 6, he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne in heaven. But this vision is not a vision so much kept, taken up with uh, pictures. It's primarily words. You're no sooner into the book. In fact, within three lines, this vision uh, changes or morphs into words. The word of the Lord. The Lord has spoken. Listen to the Lord's words. The Lord says, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, but the mighty one of Israel. In other words, this Lord, this Yahweh, the God of Israel, is communicating his message through words, through his prophet. And in many ways, that's what shapes the mission of the prophet. Whenever the prophet stands up and he announces in words that he normally uses, the sovereign Yahweh has said. He is telling you something about himself. He's saying, all I am is a representative. All I am is a mouthpiece. He's telling you also that he is a very exalted view of his office. He's telling you that he is not simply 
a court jester. He is not simply a cultural commentator or a religious entertainer. That he does not see himself primarily as an ethicist or a moralist. He sees himself primarily and fundamentally as a spokesperson speaking the Word of God. The Word comes from God. It is God's Word, God's message. And the servant disappears behind the message. He tells us about the focus. The focus of his message will be Jerusalem and Judah. Although there are words here for all of Israel, all of the twelve tribes of Israel, in fact, they're mentioned there in verse 4, and in, later on in chapter 11, verse 13, there will be a prophecy about the restoration of all those tribes and the reconciliation of all those tribes in the future. Nonetheless, the focus of this prophet is on the southern kingdom of Judah and on its capital city, Zion, Jerusalem. And he begins with Judah and Jerusalem isolated, broken down. But at the end of the book, in chapter 66, you will see Jerusalem, Zion, restored. People flocking from all over the world to the holy city. And that leads us to talk about the scope of his work. He begins in verse 2 by referring to the heavens and the earth. They're summoned to listen to what he has to say in verse 2. And then when you fast forward to the end of the book, we discover that heaven and earth are going to be so affected by what Isaiah has to say, this word of the Lord through Isaiah, that they will be transformed into a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, one of the themes of this book is going to be redemption and renewal on a cosmic scale. The prophet begins with a historical city, Jerusalem, corrupt, under judgment. He finishes in chapter 65 with the end-time city of God, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion, the joy of the whole earth. He starts in the 8th century B.C., he comes down to our time and says, speaks to us this morning. But he goes beyond our time to the close of history and on into eternity. That is the scope of the work of this magisterial prophet. Well, as we come to look at this section this morning, there's another thing that we have to bear in mind when we come to listen in to what he has to say. One of the key words in the whole Bible is the word covenant. It's not a familiar word to us today, although we are familiar to one degree or another with how it works. A covenant is an agreement of sorts. Promises are made sometimes. Oaths are given. Uh, undertakings are made. For example, you might have under undertaken today that you will, when you go back to your hall of residence or your room or whatever it is, that you're the one who's going to make lunch. That's what you've told everybody else or, or you've told the people you share with. You're going to make lunch today. You've given them a promise. They're living in the expectation that you will do that because you've made that promise. You've, you're in a covenant relationship with those people. They'll starve if you don't feed them. So I hope you've got a good, a good recipe for lunch for today. So, so we use this in business. A business deal is a kind of covenant in which Agreements are made, promises are exchanged, very often hands are shaken as a sign that the deal is done. We, we're familiar 
with this. Even in international relationships, treaties are a form of covenant arrangement. And in the ancient Near East, a big king, an emperor, for example, would have a client king. He would set him up. He would give him lands. He would tell them what the boundaries of those lands were. He would undertake, he would make undertakings that because of, uh, that he would give this client king access to, uh, uh, to goods and services. And then in return, he would require that the client king would be loyal to him, wouldn't enter into any foreign treaties, that he would be loyal to him as the great king. And very often, those kinds of covenant were written down, permanent record was kept, and in the ancient Near East was deposited in the sanctuary of the gods of the people involved. Well, in the Bible, the covenant arrangement is used in a variety of contexts. For example, the book of Genesis describes the covenant that God entered into with Adam in the garden, with Noah after the flood, with Abraham when he gives them those promises that still apply to us today. And if we're Christian people, that promise that they made to Abraham is being fulfilled. And the fact that here we are, people from all kinds of backgrounds and different nations who have come together and we've been reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Exodus, God made a covenant with Israel. He gave them a land. He said, this is the land that I'm giving to you. And I'm giving you these stipulations, these sanctions. If you obey Ten Commandments, if you obey the law that I'm giving to you, then you'll dwell in the land, you'll stay in the land. The land will not be taken away from you. A covenant, in other words, is a formal agreement that creates a relationship that has legal aspects. There are promises and oaths and sanctions. Those are elements of a covenant. And God had entered into a covenant with all Israel. And the story of upper Israel, of the, of the ten tribes of Israel that were eventually going to disappear altogether, is a great message to the Jews in Jerusalem and in Judah, and a great lesson to us that God keeps His threats as well as His promises. For about a thousand years, they'd had the law of God. For about a thousand years, they dwelled in the land. For about a thousand years, they had consistently broken their agreement with God. And so that's the place of the prophets in Scripture. The prophets come as covenant enforcers. They're ambassadors of sorts, of the great king, Yahweh. And they come reminding Israel of her covenant obligations. There the nation had pledged in the sight of the heavens and earth. Moses had called heaven and earth to bear witness. Now here were these people entering into this agreement with God. And they on their side said, all these things we will do. God's prophets come to prosecute the case of Yahweh versus Israel. So we come to our text. The court is convened. There's the first thing. The court is convened. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. You were there when these promises were made. I want you to notice, Isaiah says, you were the witnesses. I want you to notice what's being done with the promises that were made on that day. The judge is the Lord. The defendant is Israel. The witnesses are in adamant nature. And the plaintiff is none else 
than the covenant Lord, Yahweh. You'll notice in your version that the name for Lord in verse 2 is in uppercase letters. That means it translates the personal name of God, Yahweh. Where I come from, we have a queen. She is called Queen Elizabeth. Queen is her title. Elizabeth is her name. Well, very often in the Bible, when you see lowercase letters, Lord, and uppercase letters, Lord, they're translating two different words. One is a title, the king, the sovereign, the powerful one, the majestic one. The other is Yahweh, his personal name. And when it says that it's his personal name, God the Lord who has spoken, you realize that in this relationship, it's not only formal, it's not only legal, it's a personal relationship. And it sounds like that. Look at verses 2 to 4. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. Here is the personal Lord speaking to his children, Israel, those he'd brought up out of Egypt and said, out of Egypt I called my son. They were specially privileged. You know, the Old Testament, as we call it, the Hebrew Scriptures don't normally use the word father for God because in the ancient world, the word father was used by the pagan nations surrounding Israel of actual physical relationships between humans and the gods. And so it wasn't used there as much as Jesus uses it in his day. But the idea is there of the parent, the father, and the child. Reminding Israel that her existence was not primarily ethnic or linguistic or political. But it was the product of the grace of God. God had chosen them. God had set his love upon them. It wasn't because they were more numerous it wasn't because they were more beautiful or brighter or any of those things. I've loved you because I've loved you, says Yahweh to Israel. And he brought them out from Egypt. And he led them. And he brought them to the promised land. And now he says, children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. They have rebelled against me. The very word for rebel means a covenant violator. They've broken the relationship. They've, they've played fast and loose with their promises. Five times in this chapter, it refers to their rebellion. Even at the end of the book, in the last chapter, it refers to this same word, their rebellion. These are some of the things that tie the book together. They're covenant violators. And they're ignorant. Do you notice the parallelism of the poetry here? Not only have they rebelled against me, but they're ignorant of me. They don't understand. My people don't understand, verse 3. The people I've chosen don't understand, God says. And he uses an illustration that would be familiar to them because of living in a rural environment. They knew all about donkeys and, and oxes. And in gentle mockery, God says, you know, you know that those dumb animals that you work with, the donkey and the ox, you know the ox recognizes its master's voice. You know that the donkey can find its way back into the stable because that's where it gets its food. You know that these animals know and sense who owns them and who they're answerable to. Just like my dog sits waiting at the door when she knows I'm about to walk up the stairs. She senses and knows it's me. 
And she wants to torment me the minute I walk in the door to play with her. And she won't, she won't give me any peace until I've played with her because she knows who, she knows who her subject is. <laughs> God says to Israel, listen, God is your maker. God is your father. God is your lover. God is your redeemer. God is your rescuer. He has done all this for you. And you just don't even know your way back to him. You don't know him. It's as if, it's as if you had no relationship with him at all. The broken heart of God. So the court is convened and the charges are cited. Look at verse 4. It begins with a word. It's translated ah in, uh, in, uh, in uh, the, the English Standard Version, the ESV, the uh, occasionally sound version. Uh, and uh, it really is the word woe. Very often in our older translations, woe. It's a very serious word. It's a word that spells doom to people. It's, it's the opposite of blessed. You know, Jesus gave those blessings. Blessed be the poor in heart, for they shall see God, and so forth. Those blessings that he gave are the opposite of what this word woe means. It means curse. It means damned. It means doomed. It's a dreadful word. Why are they doomed? Because although they were a holy nation, they've now become a sinful nation. Although they were a chosen and redeemed people, they're now heavy with iniquity. Although they were descended from Abraham, the father of faith, now they're no longer worthy of the description offspring of Abraham. They are evildoers. And to the charge of rebellion, God adds the charge of sin, iniquity, and evil. They are full of corruption. And it's as if, it's as if uh, Isaiah comes to these people and in a succession of karate chops, sinning nation, guilty people, evil generation, corrupt children, he floors them. In fact, he even says the very worst thing you can say about the people of God, Israel. He calls them the Goy, the Goyim. You're just like all the other nations. You're just like everybody else. There's nothing to distinguish you any longer from the people round about you. Now, of course, he's addressing Israel and Judah and Jerusalem, which were a geopolitical entity in those days. But they were also a church. That is, they were also the people of God. And the transferable teaching to us today is not to think of a nation like America or England or somewhere else. It is to think of us as the people of God. That's who Isaiah is addressing. Today he's addressing the church of God. And he's saying to the church of God, I'm afraid in many of its expressions, you are no different from the nations. I have to treat you, speak to you, address you, just as if you were part of the world outside rather than those who are my chosen, redeemed, holy people. Isn't it an amazing thing that God should speak to his own people and after reciting four nouns of privilege, God's people, redeemed nation, chosen seed, his children, have four descriptions of shame, sinning, iniquity, evildoers, corruption. And it gets worse. Verse 4, they have forsaken Yahweh. 
they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Can you see this? He is writing this or addressing, preaching originally this to people who profess the, run, the, the right religion, the true religion, who would stand up, as it were, and say the creed we've all recited here today. They made public profession of following Yahweh, of giving their worship to the Holy One of Israel. And he's saying that in reality, they've forsaken the Lord. They're alienated from Him. Instead of seeking Him, they've deliberately distanced themselves from Him, spurned Him. He uses other words here, to spurn and to despise the one they should have adored. They've rejected the one they should have honored. They've treated with contempt the one who is worthy of their worship. Look at this title that Isaiah uses. This is part of his signature. You find it all over the book of Isaiah. He leaves it in there so you know he wrote it because he knows or God knows that someday somebody will say he didn't write bits of it. Well, the Holy One of Israel. That's uniquely Isaiah speaking right there. What does it mean to be the Holy One? What does it mean to be holy? Well, we, we use language in our everyday speech. When we meet someone or we, we fall in love with someone, perhaps, who immediately in our mind is separated from everybody else, everybody else in the world. They are unique. We might use language. We might write them little love letters during the summer break. Maybe you did this, only you wouldn't be, write, be writing letters like I used to do. You'd be sending emails or, or texts. And you tell them what you think about them. You're amazing. You're awesome. You're perfect. You're wonderful. You're beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. Once some more, you can use these, by the way. They're not copyrighted. <laughs> there is no one else like you. No one else like you. There will never be anyone else like you. There's all the rest and there's you. God uses that language and he says, you understand what that means when you're thinking about another human being. You find them adorable. You want to worship them. I want to tell you this, says God, you take all that language and you crank it up. You crank it up by infinity. I am utterly different from anybody else. I am set apart from anybody else. There is nobody like me. I am eternally, infinitely, marvelously, Wonderful. I am absolutely perfect. I am completely different. I am awesome and adorable and amazing. I am worthy of all of your heart's affections, worthy of all your praise, worthy of all your adoration. I am in a league of my own. That's what it means to be the Holy One of Israel. There is nobody like Him. There is nothing you can compare to Him. And all of our language that we use of one another, all of our language is baptized and transformed and multiplied a millionfold when we're thinking of this One. And it's the Holy One of Israel who comes to His own people and He says, You have abandoned me. You have turned your back and spurned me, the Holy One of Israel. 
And the consequences are clear. Those were the charges. But the consequences are clear, verses 5 to 8. I said verse 4 begins with woe because it's an oracle of doom. Well, now we discover the evidences of this doom. You know, we human beings are very contradictory, aren't we, in our reactions? When we're offended, we want justice. When we offend, we want mercy. When the consequences are good for us, in our favor, we want consequences. But when they're against us, we don't want those consequences. Well, there were consequences. God is reasoning with his people here. Do you notice in verse 5? He's saying, will you still be struck down? Smitten is the word. Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. You're just in a state of total mess. That's how you are. Look at what's happening to you. Have you asked yourself the question, why are we who were brought out of Egypt as one nation in 12 tribes, why is it that now we are divided? We who had the glory days of King David when we conquered our enemies, the high days of King Solomon when we were building palaces and building temples and we were the talk of the nations round about for our wealth. How did we come to this? Why are we all divided now? Why are those in the north now so precariously placed that they will someday disappear altogether? How did we get into this state? Sin makes consequences. For the children of Israel, for the people of Judah, the inevitable consequences were that they were being knocked down, struck down, beaten, smitten because of their rebellion. But they didn't put two and two together. They asked themselves the question, why is this happening? It's because of our rebellion against God. They were invaded by foreign powers, probably here by the Assyrians, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. He's not talking about America. He's talking about the people of God. You take this and apply it to the church today. What he's saying to them is, those political reversals, those military disasters, those economic setbacks, were as a result of your rebellion against God. And he says to the church today, you find yourself marginalized by society, you find yourself torn in two with schisms and uh, splits of one kind or another, what are you doing wrong? Why are you in this state? He says to the church today, and remember in the New Testament what the writers do there is they, they help us to see that in our application of these Old Testament stories to us as a church today, not a geopolitical entity. The issues are spiritual issues and the issues are gospel issues. If we have despised the heart of the gospel, we have despised the Holy One of Israel. If we have allowed the culture, the cultural consensus to dictate 
how we view the origin of the world and the origin of humanity. What have we done? We have despised the Word of God, the Word of the God who made us, the Word of the God who redeemed us. If we have allowed our cultured despisers outside of the church to dictate our views of Christian ministry and who should be in the ministry, who are we following? The God who redeemed us and spoke to us or the culture around us, the nations around us? Who are we like? We are like them, not like the people of God. And if we listen to our cultured despisers outside in the world as they tell us how we should live, how we should conduct ourselves, how we should view marriage or life or the value of human life, who have we made more important than the God who made us and redeemed us? In other words, the application of what Isaiah is saying to the church of his day, to our, us in our day, is this. Ask yourselves about the state you're in, and then answer the question like this. To what degree have we abandoned the God of Israel? To what degree are we letting the world around us shape us into its mold, rather than us be countercultural? And speak clearly the word of God. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. Is God saying that to the church as a body? Not, as, not a local church, but the church in America. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it. For the people of Judah and Jerusalem who were listening to Isaiah... This must have been a most devastating word of God. And all seemed to be lost. Your country lies desolate. But it's not total loss. There is a glimmer of hope. I want you to notice in verse 9. Even, look at verse 8 first of all. Even if all has been lost and all that remains... is a rough little booth in the middle of a vineyard. Gone the temple when the temple goes. Gone the city when the city goes. If all that's left is like a little wooden hut in the middle of the vineyard or the cucumber field. God is saying to his people, I haven't abandoned you altogether. There will always be a church in the world. No matter how small we shrink to, no matter how besieged we become, no matter how assaulted by the world we may be, God is saying to the people then and saying to the people today through Isaiah, there will always be a church in the world. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, a remnant, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were obliterated entirely. The church often in its history has deserved to be obliterated entirely. But God has left a remnant 
a remnant. Paul picks up this very verse. Verse 9 in Romans chapter 9 verse 29 and sees a pattern for God's dealings with his people Israel and with the church today. In his day, Israel by and large had rejected its Messiah, but not entirely. There was a remnant, a remnant who received him, a remnant who believed in him. Maybe you're here this morning and you belong genetically and, and nationally to the people of Israel. Uh, I want you to know that we, res- we, we believe our position today is a tenuous position. We've been adopted into the Israel of God. We are, we are the adopted ones. We're not naturally belonging to the Israel of God. But I urge you this, to ask yourself whether you've believed in your own Messiah, trusted in your own Messiah. There will always be a church, no matter how bad things get. But there's another indicator of hope here. Is there, any, is there any hope for people who have abandoned God, are alienated from God, who have turned away from Him, who have followed the culture rather than Christ? Is there any hope for people like that? Let me pick out three words that he uses in verses 5 and 6 to describe the state these people are in. The first word is the word struck down, stricken. The second is the word sick. The whole head is sick, faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head, no soundness, sick. The third word is the word wounds. Those three words describe the state of these people, a church that has abandoned its God. Is there any hope for people in that condition? Fast forward to Isaiah chapter 53 where Isaiah speaks about the coming one who will be the Lord's servant, the Lord's king, the servant of the the Lord. And guess what? The promised servant will be smitten, struck down. The Lord's servant will take up and carry their sicknesses. The Lord's servant will be bruised, wounded for our transgressions. And in the economy of this book, the very factors that are identified as being the results of their rebellion are passed over and laid upon the head of God's servant, Jesus, who carries the burden, who bears the smiting who carries our sicknesses, who is bruised in our place, carrying our guilt in order to reconcile rebels to God. And today, that is the great good news of the gospel, that rebels can be reconciled to God through the work of His servant, Jesus. And you can take part of that reconciliation by laying hold of Him, trusting in Him, and receiving Him for yourself. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would take this, Your Word, write it on these, our hearts, and help us, Lord, to reach out to Him and to lay hold of Him by faith. We pray in His strong name. Amen.